we think we're having a huge impact on that and definitely when we you know continue to grow and scale um, that could have a huge impact in reducing fast fashion purchases. Hello, this is People Building Businesses, the podcast from YB Adventures, where you get to hear insights from people running the most exciting companies in Australia and beyond. Before we talk to today's guest, I want to tell you a bit about YB Adventures. Our mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. We've got spaces in Melbourne and Sydney, and if you want to find out more, head over to ybadventures.com. On this episode, we're talking to Kirsten Kaur, the co-founder of Australian startup DesignerX which is now one of the world's leading peer-to-peer designer dress sharing platforms. DesignerX was founded in Sydney in 2015, and it's exploded in popularity with 100% year-on-year growth. Amazing. Over 14,000 dress listings live on the site, expansion to the US, and multiple awards. It's a story I'm very, very keen to know more about, so let's find out about how they've done it. Kirsten? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. As you uh, would know from the podcast that we've done in the past, and I hear you've listened to a few of them, I'd like to start by trying to understand Kirsten the person. So could you tell us a bit about where you grew up and maybe some early influences in your childhood that led you on this path to being an entrepreneur? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was born in Sydney, um, in Paddington, and grew up for about 10 years of my life, the first part. Um, around the Randwick area, so you know, hanging around the beaches was kind of my thing. So where the race course? Is? Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Then from there, uh, around the time my parents divorced, I guess we moved to the Lower Blue Mountains, and yeah, my mum was a single mum at that point with three kids. Um, went back to work as a nurse, so um, saw her working, you know, sixty plus hours to to raise three kids. So. Um, back to loop back to your question in terms of influences, um, definitely my mother uh, showed a lot of strength through that. So yeah, went went to school up in the Lower Blue Mountains. Um, I actually had my first job at 13, nine months. You know, I, I realised that was the legal age to get a job. Right. Um, so I handed in my application to McDonald's. Um, so yeah, I worked I worked there till I was 18. What happened after that? Well, when I was 18 and finished the HSC, I, I quit straight away. And I think I knew, you know, forever that that Lower Blue Mountains type of um, feel wasn't really for me. So I um, looked for a full-time job and the only filter, you know, on Seek was um, the CBD. So any, any job that would take me um, that was in the CBD, I, I took. And so my first job was um, in real estate with Costa Coolis, which was uh, a very successful agency in the CBD. Yeah, that was my first job as an adult. So when did this entrepreneurial drive in you first appear? Was it when you were still growing up, early stages of your job, or mm-hmm. was it only after you entered the, the full-time workforce that you realized, hey, you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I think looking back, it was definitely sitting in my subconscious. Um, you know, I was washing cars for money, doing, you know, hustling about from a young age. But I didn't really believe, you know, I could start a business and it wasn't really something that I was chasing. I just wanted a full-time job at that time just to go travelling, really. But I, yeah, I fell into that job and, and met my partner, who's my partner today, so 10 years later. And he's very entrepreneurial, so he really 
lit the fire, I guess, um, with me, you know, wanting to chase chase a dream, really. That's awesome. So you met your co-founder while working at your job in the real estate firm. How did you know that it would be a good idea to get into business with someone like that? Yeah, um, well, I worked for him and then we ended up together. Uh, So I was working with him in his business and it was all just a very natural flow. It wasn't really a decision that we'd be working together. Um, And he had innovated within the real estate industry and created um, a digital real estate for sales sign, which was kind of separate to his real estate agency. So working there a few years, we decided to sell off the agency and focus full time on this exciting venture and exciting innovation that he created. Gotcha. By together, do you mean together together? Yeah, we're together together. Like together in business, together in life. Wow. I've got so many questions about that because it's often... uh, minefield dealing with those kinds of relationships Mm. but you seem to have done that really really well yeah so what lit the fire in you to start designer x where did the inspiration for the company come from yes so after we had sold the agency and we were commercializing this signboard business we actually brought on a few a few directors to kind of help us commercialize that business and it unfortunately um that one of the directors wanted it for himself and I guess, issued illegal shares to dilute shareholding and fired Costa from his own company. So that's another story in itself. Wow. But um, So we were in court for a few years trying to get our assets back. So going through that, which was quite a hard time, but it taught us a lot to... Um, it taught us a lot in resilience and overcoming adversity. So... Designer X was really born from adversity, I guess. We, at that point, my spark had been lit, so my mind was open to opportunities. And that's, so I had a job at the time um, in another real estate agency in Potts Point. Um, And yeah, so the idea really came when I had an awards night for that agency. Um, And I was searching for a dress, found a dress around $1,000, And was just standing in the shop just thinking, how can I justify this purchase when I know I'm only going to wear it once? So I'm just standing there trying to convince myself that for $1,000 for one wear, it's a a good choice, but it just wasn't. So I went back to the office and tried to convince the girls to convince me to buy it, which didn't work. Um, But one of the girls said, you can rent dresses on Facebook. So... I went searching on Facebook and actually found the exact dress. So I actually did rent it and I had a great experience. Um, The only thing, I had to email her my credit card details and it just wasn't secure. Um, And then I thought, you know, what if I want to rent another dress? I have to go digging through Facebook again. And there just wasn't a platform to be able to track and manage and receive reviews just like you do on Airbnb, for example. There was no secure end-to-end platform. Yeah, so I went to Costa with my problem. um, And, yeah, we just started talking. And the first thing, you know, kind of brainstorming. um, And we're like, I I suggested, why don't we buy 20 dresses, $20,000? And he just looked at me and thought, that's that's a terrible idea. That's like, you know. You did it anyways. No, well, we didn't purchase. (laughs) No, he goes, you know, there's a better way to do this. Firstly, it's not solving the problem of opening up the wardrobes of women and to 
enable them to make money from their dresses. So that's when we came to the peer-to-peer -peer model, where we, we're not purchasing the inventory, but we're actually extracting from the wardrobes of women who are already buying them. Gotcha. So what were the early days of the company like? You, you debated the idea, you landed on this peer-to-peer -peer model. What were the first steps that the two of you took to actually getting the company off the ground? Yeah, so we decided to allocate $5,000 and that's it. Um, and we were just like, we'll, we'll see how it goes with, with that amount. So the first thing we did was we lodged a patent around the systems um, that we were going to produce. And on the back of that, we started getting quotes, I guess, and we were non-technical founders. So uh, we just kind of did what we thought we needed to do. We got some quotes to kind of um, design the platform that we wanted, um, which was something that didn't exist. So we were kind of, you know, having to explain a business model that didn't really exist. Um, so that was a challenge, but very exciting. Um, and just off the back of that hustling around, we found an angel investor who was interested in, you know, backing, um, you know, a potentially high growth startup. Um, tech startup. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> so usually with our guests on the podcast, we usually um, are able to to have an idea of how they built their company because there are interviews out there and, you know, we, we do a bit of LinkedIn uh, mm. looking up. But, you know, your company is an enigma uh, to me at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to peel back a few layers into okay. that. Firstly, why start with a patent application? How has that worked out for you? Yeah. Uh, well, Costa had done that with his signboard and it actually proved very valuable in the fact that someone else wanted it so bad that they were willing to take it. Wow. But it was just the first step that we thought of and it was not um, something that we were going to absolutely rely on to protect us. We didn't, we don't believe that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's some paperwork that does protect you. Um, but that was just our first step into protecting idea that we researched that that didn't exist. Did the earlier interaction with the director in your previous company influence your decision to start with a patent and protecting the IP? I think definitely we definitely more understood the importance of protecting your IP. Um, yeah, whether that's through a patent or protecting it in other ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So. You mentioned as well that you started the company on a shoestring budget of $5,000 and that the two of you were actually non-technical co-founders. So how did you manage to have an entire platform built with such limited budget? Yeah, so after we lodged the patent, we did secure about 100000 But yeah, being non-technical co-founders, we basically just as entrepreneurs we just did what we thought we needed to do uh so we started just talking to people about building this platform that we had in mind and you know some of them suggesting building on magento and different types of platforms and you know frameworks uh and then we'd ask we'd ask questions like well can we scale this can we um, integrate this type of technology and we wanted to integrate ID verification technology which scans a user's driver's license or passport remotely which companies like Airbnb and EasyJet use to verify members which ultimately creates a lot of trust in the platform and that's something we wanted to launch with because yeah that was our 
big thing about creating a platform is that it would be secure. You mentioned Airbnb a couple of times. I'm guessing you take a lot of inspiration from that company. I do actually. Yeah. And we looked at Airbnb and, and, and to get to that, um, when we were researching what type of platforms to go with, we did look at big scalable startups and companies and Airbnb was one of them and they use Ruby on Rails. And so we were like, okay, I think this is it. It's got to be custom built so we can integrate these things that we want. And so one of the guys we were talking to uh, had a referral. He was Nepalese and he had a referral to an up-and-coming Ruby team in Nepal. So we got a referral to them and they built our platform from scratch. That's amazing. A lot of people in in startups who are non-technical seem to think that going the outsourced route is a good path. And um, a lot of them are considering, you know, having remote outsourced teams work for them as well. What was your interaction like working with the team from Nepal? It must be, was it difficult for you at all? Yeah, it was um, new and different. We did have a small experience with our, with the previous company, with the signboard where we used India for a little bit and we lost $5,000 over there. And so we didn't have a great experience. So we didn't seek to outsource the tech. But it just naturally evolved where we got the referral. It was a referral from a reputable person in Sydney. So we just thought we'd speak to them. They were great. They were really keen to get involved. And we kind of took a bite-sized step. So we didn't invest too much money um, without getting some work back from them. So I guess we kind of had a bit of experience there in trying to manage that so, well. So what was that process like? If a company came up to you today and say, hey, Kristen, I'm, I'm thinking of outsourcing my tech development overseas, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily advise them to go and outsource it. I think it was just luck for us that we, or not so much luck, just how it worked for us with the referral um, and our experience, it worked for us. But otherwise, I would maybe advise them to just put something really scrappy together, don't spend too much money, and try and get some traction early. So one of the biggest pieces of tractions that you got in the early stages of the company was a $100,000 investment from an angel investor. How did you do that? Where'd you meet this investor? How did you convince the, the investor to put money in your company? Yeah, well, like I said, we met him through kind of a contact after we were looking around for people to design and build our platform. So it was through those networks where he had, uh, I guess, contacts and, you know, someone kind of joined us together. He was looking for something exciting. We had something exciting that we wanted to build. And so we came together and, you know, you, you, you tell your vision and your story and what you want to build. You make it sound really easy, but for a lot of people, it's actually really, yeah. really hard to find an investor. Yeah. So what was the pitch like? Was it an elevator pitch that you gave or? Well, it was actually, it was actually my co-founder that met him at the airport, I think. So it was wow. kind of like, yeah, I think it's just a big build up. You know, you've got to hustle around. That's how we even got the connection. You've got to have, you know, a great story. And, um, you know, a bit of show a bit of grit that you're willing to go all in. So it's not just at one point in time. It was all the work that you've done before that that led you up to that moment. Uh, yeah, that's what I believe. Yeah. So besides that angel investor, you've also subsequently raised even more money. I think you've raised about 700000 in seed capital. 
Mountain. Is that right? Not quite. It's, okay. So in total, me. in total, we've raised seven hundred thousand. So was that from another group of angel investors? No. So that was our initial investor backing us. Wow. Okay. Doubling down the yeah, company. Yeah, doubling down, and he was a big supporter of us expanding as quickly as possible. So. Yeah, he backed us and backed our um, vision to go to the U.S. as soon as possible. And it sounds like this is a person who really believes in your company as well, this investor. What advice would you give for a startup who is considering taking money from angel investors? Because sometimes it's not easy to figure out if the investor is the right fit for you. Mm. But it seems like you've got a good fit for your company with this particular investor who's doubled down. Yeah, definitely finding a right fit um, for us. I guess he saw something in us and in our idea and how we we're going to execute it. But any advice to other entrepreneurs? I think definitely if you can align your angel investors as much as possible, that also gives you the best opportunity to secure the funding because these angel investors that you're going to target or speak to are interested in what you're doing or interested in the space. So you've got a better chance of securing that funding. So we read that you're growing 100% year on year. That's an amazing amount of growth for a startup, for any company. Mm. What was your strategy to, to get that growth? Yeah, and to be honest, it's mostly organic as well. We, we try not to spend too much on advertising. And when we do, we do it quite strategically and make sure we make a dollar back when we put it in. I guess from the beginning, we got a lot of traction from when we first launched. Just, I guess I was the consumer. I knew what the problems were. I knew who to target and where to target them. Um, so the early days, it was literally organic social media. I would be on there just hustling about organically. So, And I knew that's where our customer was. They were sitting on Instagram looking for inspiration and looking for products and looking for dresses, really. Um, and that's where they were posting all their content from their events. Um, so that's, yeah. So social media marketing was at the core of your growth strategy. It's such a complex world these days, social media marketing, with the way that Instagram's changing likes and yeah. the different algorithms. Did you, do you have a formula behind all yeah. this? Or is there a method to the madness? Yeah. <laughs> there was lots of madness, a little bit of method. This was back in 2016. So I think it was a little bit easier to kind of hustle for that traction on Instagram. I think it's slightly different now. I guess they've tailored it that way where you have to kind of pay to get um, some traction. But, you know, we, we moved to different um, methods as well where we give every user kind of a custom URL and they put it in their bio on Instagram. So they actually drive traffic to the platform to their own followers in their, in their bio. So we create things like that to drive traffic to the platform. Designer X is a classic case of two-sided marketplace. You need a group of people who have dresses that they want to rent mm -hmm. out, and you want to have a group of people who also want to rent dresses. And often there's this chicken and egg problem where you don't know which side of the market to start mm. with. What was your approach to building that market? Yeah, uh, interesting question. And we, uh, before we launched, we knew about this chicken and egg thing sure. for marketplaces. So we did do this really strategically. Um, we, so we built the platform and then we built up some hype around it. Uh, we actually blocked off half the platform for renters. So when you went to book a dress, a pop-up would appear and it would say, you're a bit keen, just wait, we haven't fully launched yet. But what we were doing was we were building listings on the platform. Um, and I did that by 
basically calling and contacting all these little groups that were on Facebook and telling them about what we were building and how it was super secure and we were going to drive them more renters basically. And listing is free. So I got a lot of listings at the beginning by combining all these girls with dresses. So I built up a big bank of dresses that were on the platform and when we had large enough offering to go to the market then we released the full marketplace when we'd built up you know a subscriber list and then when we drove renters to the platform there was actually a lot of product to look at right so you're building a database of potential customers while you were building up the supply side of yeah. the business do you think this is a good strategy for for all marketplaces or do you think this is something specific to the the industry that you're in I think uh, it, obviously it would be slightly different for every business or industry, but I think you could definitely apply that strategy to any marketplace, build up the product or service, preferably in the background. Um, and if it's free to list, there's kind of nothing, there's no you know, um, negative for the, for the people with the product or service. Um, so build that up as much as possible. And then so when you're driving the people that want want the product or service, um, you've actually got what consumers want in a marketplace and that's choice, uh, variety, and um, yeah, just as much selection as possible. What was the first signs that the company was starting to blow up and in a good way? Yeah. By blow up, I mean, <laughs> when, what was the first sign that you kind of went, wow, this is really taking off? Yeah. Well, it was pretty exciting just even the first few months. We were really excited. We were high-fiving every time a booking would come through. But now plenty of high-fives. Now we too many high-fives. <laughs> um, it was probably even just in the first few months. We launched in January and by May we were being featured on the Today Show. Wow. Yeah, and we didn't even know it. They were just kind of looking at dress rental services, that go-to rental services, and they, they featured us and we just... At that time, we we're kind of looking at our traffic a lot, um, and we just saw it spike. So, and we and we attributed that to um, Channel Nine. Did you ever find out how they heard about your company? I think it was my hustling on Instagram, to be <laughs> honest, because um, those early days, I don't think, yeah, we didn't spend anything on marketing. Wow. So, they just did. We didn't even know about it. So that was really exciting. National television morning show. That's amazing. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. You mentioned earlier at the start that your co-founder is, you know, partners with you not just in business, but in life as well. How do you manage that that dynamic? Because sometimes it's, you know, some people have a rule where they, they'll never ever work with their partner, yeah. um, whereas some other people do really well in business doing that. So yeah. how do you work that dynamic out for you? Yeah, I mean... If I had a choice, you would probably choose not to work with your partner. Okay. But <laughs> no, but um, we worked with each other before we um, became partners sure. in life. So we knew how to work with each other and that's just how it is. So you just kind of manage it the best you can. Um, and we both are very aligned in, in vision um, for the company and in life. So... That alignment definitely helps. And how do you build that alignment? So you naturally both need to want the same things in life in terms of, um, you know, uh, pursuing a startup, for example. Not everyone wants to do that. Um, there's a, an element of risk uh, to do that. 
but also just flexibility and support always. So I think that's been our success. So and that, that mutual understanding that startup life can be a bit crazy sometimes. Yeah. But you know, do, do you ever do you ever commingle business talk with personal talk, or do, are they separate boundaries that you try to it compartmentalize? It is always mixed. Okay, it's yeah. just always mixed. Rather than pretending that they're, yeah. you know, I mean. I tell him to get off his phone a few times, okay. but <laughs> but really, it's you know that's our our business is our life, yeah. Um, and our lifestyle is mixed with our business, so it's yeah, it's one big mix. But just respect and okay. um, and support, yeah. Um, and we kind of if someone's having a low day, it's kind of the other one seems to step up, so that works well. Awesome. Thanks for the advice. <laughs> So we're jumping topics here and there, but you know you've you've now raised capital from from your investor, and you've made your first international move into New York. Why this? Why decide to expand into the U.S.? Was there a strategic angle to that? Yeah. So, well, going back to you know our build and everything of the platform, um, we always had a global vision. We knew it was scalable. We weren't. Um, investing in inventory it was purely a technology business um so for us it was global or nothing um so going to the u.s was kind of a matter of time for us and with our investor backing us um to go there as soon as possible um and also at the time last year we were accepted into the austrade landing pad program right so in san francisco awesome so yeah within a month you know we packed our bags and headed to the US um, and set up shop in San Francisco for a few months uh, just to really explore that market and know that that's the market that we want to go into. What was the Austrian landing pad like? What was the experience? It was incredible. They basically put you in a room with 10 other startups that want want to expand as well into, you know, a co-working space and they give you, you know, introductions left, right and centre and um, so if that's the market you want to go to, you want to go to and leverage um, as much as possible. So the landing pad did that for us. When you got into the US, did you see any differences at all between the way that startups are in Australia are run versus the way that startups are run in the US? Yeah, I mean, going over to the US, your eyes really open up. It's a massive market. The world is so huge. We are quite small here. It's really viewed as, you know, Australians kind of a test market and things. But for us, you know, it's very fashion savvy market here in Australia. And we went there and actually got a lot of feedback that American women actually love Australian fashion. So we really brought that um, approach to that market. And raising capital, yeah, I think they're a bit more open to backing startups over there. Right. People say that Australians are sometimes too hesitant to ask for what they want, especially when it comes to running a company, and that Americans are often more upfront about wanting something or needing something. Do you think that's true? I think that's true, yeah. And do you think that's a good thing? I think that's a good thing. I think the American way of approaching um, capital, I think we definitely need to learn from. And, well, especially if you're speaking to U.S. investors, they kind of, you need to speak their language and what they're used to. Sure. Yeah. So you've landed in San Francisco through the Austrade landing pad. How did you then decide to move to New York and base yourselves out of there? What was it about New York that attracted your company? Well, as opposed to San Francisco, New York's very um, fashion dominated. So when it comes to speaking to people 
for our business, whether it be venture, venture capital or even high net worth individuals or just strategic partnerships for the future, anything to do with our business, there are more people in New York that are aligned with what we're, we're doing and are more interested in fashion and, and technology. So. Sure. And when you say that you've opened up in New York, what does that involve was that, did it actually involve, you know, you physically um, launching a team there in New York based out of there to then recruit people to put their, their dresses on the platform yep. and to find customers? Did it yep. involve all of that? Yeah, it did. Um, and being a global company, um, what better place to base yourself and have your headquarters mm. out of New York? So, uh, yeah, we're now based out of New York and we've got our first employee there. Yeah, and we just recently, very recently launched in the US. So, awesome. And we launched with eight times the amount of listings we did um, here in Australia. Wow. Yeah, so it just goes to show how big that market is and the opportunity. Any uh, tips for companies looking to expand to overseas? I would definitely look at the landing pad if they're if they're looking at expanding. It just it, it fast tracks your you know your expansion opportunities. So I would definitely look at that and definitely go on like a field trip over there and just um, go and speak to people over there and just realize and decide if that's really the market you want to go into. Okay. So Designer X, besides being a startup that is helping people access all these dresses. I understand that you've also got a social impact angle um, to your company and that you've really got to focus on sustainability in fashion. What does that mean, sustainability in fashion? Yeah. Well, you know, at the beginning, I, I wasn't overly aware of, you know, the impacts, but being involved in this company, we've realized that we are having a positive impact on the environment and, you know, by circulating designer fashion and when we see dresses being rented 30 times over to 30 different women, you know, that's 30 different women that haven't potentially bought, you know, a fast fashion item, for example. We think we're having a huge impact on that. And definitely when we, you know, continue to grow and scale, um, that could have a huge impact in reducing fast fashion purchases. How do you think the, tr the, the trends in the fashion industry are changing? Because if you look at some of the largest companies in the world, these are often, like you said, you know, the fast retailing companies, fast mm. fashion companies. Mm. And it's it's more con it's sometimes really convenient for the consumer to just go to a Zara, for example, or a Uniqlo and get something off the rack. Mm. What What's changing these days in making people go, hey, you know, maybe that's not the best way to spend my money mm. or maybe that's not the most sustainable thing to do. What, what, what trends are you seeing in the market that is paving the way for a company like Designer X? Yeah. Well, it's definitely the new consumer, um, millennials and Gen Z, they're hyper aware of what they're buying and who they're buying it from um, and the impact they're having um, on the environment, for example. So the new consumer, uh, they're definitely um, wanting to purchase from companies who have, um, you know, a purpose behind their business as well. So, and I guess looking back, I'm a millennial. I was looking at that dress and I just didn't want to waste it and I didn't want to waste my money. You know, I just thought it was a big waste, to be honest. So I, I definitely think it's the new consumer. They're much more aware. I guess also technology has um, enabled them to be more aware in terms of um, being able to access, you know, data around this, you know, um, Every, you know, a few seconds is a truckload of clothing being dumped right. in landfill. Um, and do you think these large retailing companies are eventually going to wake up to the need for sustainability in fashion? 
Yeah, I definitely think it will be kind of a not who's has a sustainable element to their business, but who doesn't. So I think they'll kind of right, be okay. caught out for gotcha. that. Yeah, I think it's going to move there pretty quickly. How do these companies evolve? I mean, they've already built a model that's so dependent on churning out fast fashion mm. with very little regard to the environment. How, how do these companies adapt? Is it something like you know acquiring a designer X in the future or is it just completely adapting their business model for the new consumer? Yeah, uh, well, for them to adapt, I think it's not an overnight process definitely for them. Um, it will be a slow churn for them. But for example, Zara has put out that they want to be, um, they want to make sustainable clothing by 2025. So every item of their clothing will be sustainable. So they are moving there. I'm not sure exactly their processes that they're going to do. I guess um, use better quality materials that actually decompose and things like that. Or and pay people a living wage as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah, the so Nike the environment scandal. but also um, treating people the way they need. Yeah. Awesome. So what are what are your future plans now for growth for the company? What does the next few years look like for Designer X? Yeah, so I guess continuing our growth here in Australia um, and definitely focusing on the US, growing that. But from day one we've had a global vision, so definitely looking at other markets to go into. We really want to be a global dress hire solution. Wherever a woman is or wherever she's traveling, she can book a dress just like she books an Uber or an Airbnb. Just peeling back the layers from that question as well, it sounds like there's a a big requirement for efficiency in your supply chain um, and delivery processes to to get those dresses you know, from one part of the globe to another, should that be what people want? If someone wanted a dress in the US now that you've opened there from Australia, for example, mm. what, what does the process look like? Do you handle the logistics behind all that or is that with the, the lister and the consumer yeah. to handle that? So Australians only transact between each other in Australia. Sure. And Americans will only transact and so on. And if you're in the UK, you'll just transact within your own country. Just because it's a rental, it's a four-day rental, so we don't allow rentals cross-border. Cross but yeah, we, we provide as many tools as possible on the platform. So we have tracking facilities and we make it as easy as possible for our users to receive the dress um, and make money and save money and wear the dress and everyone's happy. What's involved in building a supply chain like that? As a company for us, we don't touch the dresses and we don't see them um, just to ensure it's as efficient as possible and the user gets it as soon as possible. So it's just in the whole custom built platform where, you know, a booking is accepted or declined and then there's a lot of reminders and notifications going on in the platform and, and users will enter their tracking number into the platform so they can track it from start to finish. Kirsten, we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to touch on a subject that it, it's, it looks like it's quite you're quite passionate about. You wrote an article in Startup Daily recently about being a woman in the industry, and you had some great tips in there for some of the you know women founders out there. Things like turning up with confidence and maintaining a level of self-awareness and reflection, having empathy, um, leaning in and connecting with other female founders. What inspired you to, to write that piece? Was it an experience that you had yourself being in the industry? I guess... My experiences have been literally from speaking to other women in tech and, you know, the difficulties they encounter and we encounter. And so I really wanted to just share my learnings, I guess, because I did start very shy and, you know, didn't really back myself. But, you know, in the past 10 years, I 
yeah, I'm quite confident now and have learnt a lot by leaning on um, my peers, you know, in, in the tech industry and in particular females. We have very similar, you know, experiences and issues that we, we talk about. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that. And coming around full circle as well, the last piece of advice you wrote in that article was acknowledge your role models. You mentioned early on in the podcast that your mom is a big role model for yourself. What does she think about you today? What does she think about, you know, Kristen, the the startup founder who's raised a bunch of capital, who's now in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's proud, obviously. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, And she's always just supported me. Like if I say I want to do something, she's like, okay, that's a good idea, Kirsten, go for it. So um, always very open-minded, you know, never pushed me to, for example, go to uni, which was never something I wanted to do. Um, So, yeah, just full support of your family is amazing. And I feel very privileged to have that. Awesome. Thank you, Kristen, for being on the podcast. It was great having you here. Thank and I you definitely learned me. a lot. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Jason.